you're going to see two chapters on there. The first one, even though there's a lot of notes on that, um, we're going to just kind of um, skim through a lot of chapter 7 because Brother Josh already covered that last week. And so uh, I had these notes, so I thought, let's go ahead, let's, uh, let's still hand these out um, to, just kind of as, as an overview from uh, in case I know some of you Perhaps we're not here last week, so you can have some of the notes from that. Uh, but then we're going to be diving into chapter 8. And I don't have any notes on here, but uh, maybe even get into some of chapter 9 uh, there at the beginning of that tonight. We'll see. Uh, we're going to try to cover some territory here tonight in First Corinthians. I hope that you have enjoyed this, uh, this study into this book. I have thoroughly enjoyed it myself. Um, I don't remember if... Uh, I had mentioned this on Sunday uh, in our main service, or if it was just in our volunteer meeting uh, prior to service. But uh, this past Wednesday, I was uh, I was down in a service at because of the times in Louisiana, and our general superintendent, Brother Dave Bernard, he uh, opened up that entire conference, and his subject that he was preaching on was First Corinthians, and uh, it was how God will build a church. There, there will be a church in Corinth. And uh, it was uh, just amazing to hear his heartbeat uh, for uh, really the same thing that I've been, that we've been studying our, uh, here at New Life. And uh, he was showing some of the pictures that he had just this past summer gone to Corinth. And uh, he was there and he had some of the pictures. If you remember in week one, uh, of our of our study, I had talked about how uh, the location of where Corinth was at was in this place that situated it for commerce, uh, being on this isthmus in Greece, um, where there was a lot of trade that would go through there. But it was also a place where uh, there was at the southern part of the city, just outside the city, was this very large uh, hill. It was called Acro Corinth. And uh, on that hill was the temple to Venus, and uh, he had that picture of that great big hill and uh, what is now the ruins of, of the temple that's up on that great large hill or mountain that is there, and uh, then a, a, another uh, temple as well that was within the city, um, and uh, just was talking about the uh, the... Play, this this pagan culture that they were in, and how even in that culture, God sent Paul, and God sent a team of people, and He said, "Don't be afraid. I'll be with you. There's others who are there. They need to hear this gospel message." And there was a church. There was a thriving church that was established in Corinth, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, that today, I'm thankful for that tonight. To know that even in that godless society, God was able to establish a church. We're living in a society today that uh, it may seem as though they don't, they want to reject this gospel message, but there are people who need this. There are people who want this and they are searching and I'm thankful for what God is doing in this last days. Amen. So, uh, if you're there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, just as I said, I'm just going to do a quick overview of, of some of this. I know it was covered 
last week so well by uh, Brother Josh, but um, in this, it was really finishing out a, uh, a section of this letter that was regarding sexual morality and, and immorality and, and dealing with all of that. This uh, less so with the uh, sexual immorality and more so about relationships and uh, specifically starts off with marriage and uh, what is supposed to take place within marriage and how these relationships are uh, should be, or should uh, should be and he's here he is responding to questions and some misapplications from the Corinthian church to some of his previous communications with them and so we always have to remember that this book of First Corinthians this is not the first communication that Paul has had with the Corinthian church. First of all, he was there with them. He spent a lot of time with them. But he's also had some communication back and forth since leaving Corinth. And uh, there's some of that communication that has gotten misapplied by the church. And he's correcting them in these areas. And uh, there's some of, some of those who are in the Corinthian church, they were opposed, or seems to be, they were opposed to the sanctity of marriage. And there were others uh, who viewed celibacy as attaining this higher level of holiness. That even within marriage, they uh, there were there were some. It seems as though they they believed that uh, uh, that there should be a total rejection of all sexual uh, uh, sexual interactions, even within marriage. And we'll see that Paul. Paul, he corrects that. He says that is not how it's supposed to be. Uh, when I'm talking about uh, this, these sexual relationships, that is permissible. In fact, it is, uh, it, 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 is uh, um, it should be done within the marriage relationship. It is not just permissible, but this is encouraged within a marriage relationship. And so uh, this whole idea of celibacy is within the marriage context is, is not right and we'll see Paul addresses that. Uh, it's also good just to note that Paul himself is unmarried. He says that and uh, mentions that in chapter 7, verse 8. Um, and there seems to be this unknown crisis, or at least it's unknown to us. It was not unknown to them. But Paul mentions this crisis that was taking place in Corinth that in some way was influencing some of Paul's guidance in these matters. So some of that's just good context to, to remember as we're reading through some of this, that we don't really get the full context of understanding everything that was happening. Now, if I could just sum all this up, and I and I will sum it up. We're not going to go through this whole thing. But uh, verse 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, if I could just read that in the New Living Translation. Uh, I believe this is really a key point that Paul goes back to. I could have pulled really these words from a couple of different scriptures throughout that chapter because he uses the this phrase several times he's saying he says yes each of you should remain as you were when God called you remain as you were when God called you in other words maintain your relationships as they are that your status as a Christian does not release you from binding relationships and so there was some confusion that was taking place there appears to be uh, some confusion about Paul's instruction 
to the Corinthian church in previous letters about how they should, uh, they should not fellowship with fornicators. Well, you have some of these people in the church who they themselves are in the church, but their spouse is not in the church. They are in the church, and when you say not in the church, that's not like today, today not in the church, where you may have somebody that is married and you're, you attend church, but your, your spouse, you know, they confess to be a Christian, but they just don't attend with you. Now, if this, in this, you know, in that day and age, in the first century, when you say one in the church and one not in the church, it wasn't somebody with some Christian belief. It was, it was somebody who was in the church and a pagan, somebody who was completely, uh, completely against or lived completely a different life than that of a Christian. And yet we'll see that what Paul is, is instructing them to do, even in those relationships, is to remain in those relationships. Remain married. Don't just cut, cut this off just because you're a Christian. Uh, don't, you know, God, God, he sees that marriage as a binding uh, relationship. It was a promise that you made. And so just because you have come to Christ doesn't mean that you need to forsake, the, forsake your marriage or forsake uh, those who uh, you have come into this binding contract with. And uh, also within that, that um, you should uh, you should remain uh, in a conjugal relationship. That spousal intimacy it's godly. That spouses uh, really should only withhold intimacy if both of them agree. There's really three. All three of these quali- All three of these things um, he says are needed in order to withhold intimacy. It's that both of them agree that it's only for the purpose of spiritual growth. He just mentions fasting and prayer, that for a time you may withhold intimacy for the, uh, if both of you are in agreement, if you are doing this for the purpose of fasting and prayer, and that it's only for a set amount of time. He says that you would go back to a time of intimacy. And so he's, and this is because this is how God designed us as human beings to need intimacy. And uh, he says that spousal intimacy is this buffer to temptation. So, um, he's, he's teaching here on how marriage is a good thing. And yet he himself is not married. Paul is not married. And we'll, and you'll see, uh, I know brother Josh, he covered, covered this, but that, that Paul, he encourages them to also remain not married. If he says, if you don't need to be married, that's actually a good thing. He said, myself, I have not been married, and I encourage you, if you are able to, do that yourself. And especially as he gets into, uh, uh, what's what's the passage there? 12, verses 12 through, or no, it is, let's skip down here. Verses... 29 through 35. That's what I was looking for. And uh, he, he goes through how marriage, it's consuming. That being married, it's, it takes a lot of effort. 
there's a lot of time that you'll spend and expend. And he's, he, he brings up the fact, hey, our time is short. And we are all called to go and to reach this world of the gospel. He says, and marriage, it's consuming. So I'm going to encourage you, don't let it be all-consuming, is what he says. He says, it's okay for you to be married. Just don't let it be all-consuming so that all of your focus, that everything that you do is all about what's happening here on earth and everything that's going to going to end here on earth, but rather you need to make sure that there's also space for doing the work of the Lord. That in everything that you do, that you would allow there to be space for the work of the Lord. So he does not, uh, he does not say that marriage is bad. In fact, he encourages marriage, um, but he also encourages uh, those who are not married to, uh, to remain that way if they are able to because there are benefits to being uh, to not being married and so uh, that is uh, we could you could dive so much deeper into this um, last week if you didn't catch that you could get that deep dive into it but uh, we had all those notes I wanted to just cover those real quick and then let's go into chapter eight because Paul here is going to make a turn um, away from what he has been covering these last couple of chapters regarding uh regarding our our sexual um uh, vices and sexual uh sins different things and relationships and now he says and this is kind of the indicator that Paul is switching subjects the first thing that he says here is now as touching things offered unto idols so now okay now I'm switching subjects now as touching things offered unto idols we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. Okay, it's really interesting. Paul says, okay, let's switch subjects. Now, if you're just reading through this letter, you you might think that Paul has ADD. Uh, you know, he just kind of switches subjects. He covers all kinds of different things as he's writing to them. It's not that he's uh, he has ADD. It's not that he has, I don't know, maybe he did. But uh, he, uh, he he's addressing these things. As I said, he is, he is, this is part of communication that he's having back and forth. So, he is answering questions that they have asked of him. And so he feels as though he's, he's fleshed out enough about the previous questions. Now it's time to go on to the next questions that they've asked him. And so, uh, so he goes here and he says, we're going to address this question that you guys have about idols. Particularly, you don't see this yet, but particularly the meat, eating meat that's been offered to idols. But then, as we just read those first three verses, he doesn't even say anything about idols. He says, okay, let's switch subjects. Let's go to this thing that you have, uh, this question that you have about offering meat to idols, this thing about idols. Well, we know that we all have knowledge. So the Corinthian church, just remember this, that 
this is some context that we need to need to understand or need to have to understand this is that you have both uh, Jewish people who people who are formerly Jews and people who uh, they were formerly pagans, these Gentiles. And in fact, the majority of the of the Corinthian church was comprised of Gentiles, uh, these former pagans, people who they would go and they would uh, they would worship these idols. They would. Uh, they had all of this pantheon of gods that they would serve, and and this was, um, you know, this is part of their daily routine. That in order for them to have an abundant harvest, they would go and they would they would serve the gods that would uh, the, the god that would send the rain. They would go and they would uh, they would offer up sacrifices to the god of love in order for them to have children. They would offer up sacrifices to the God of war uh, if they are in a in a place where their uh, their city is being besieged or they they're needing uh, to have victory in some area. And so they have all these different gods, all these different um, you know, multiplicity of gods that they would serve. They would offer these sacrifices to. And in doing this, there was different ways that they would offer sacrifices Similar to the Jews, similar to, uh, I guess, even uh, Christians today, you know, they, they would go to a temple, they'd go to a place, a house of worship. And there they would they would come and they would meet the priest. They would meet the one who they uh, would help them in their sacrifices, help them in their uh, in their offerings that they were going to give. And in doing so, uh, sometimes this was. Uh, as we have mentioned before, uh, if they're going to the god, the goddess of, of love, uh, their sacrifice there was uh, was for them to meet the temple prostitutes, and that was part of their worship. Uh, but if you go to these other uh, these other places, just just like you may have gone to the the temple in Jerusalem and offered up a sacrifice, they would have also brought a sacrifice of an animal. To these temples, and they would have they would have given it to the priest. And the priest would have cut that cut that up and would have sacrificed it there upon the altar. It wasn't consuming. And this is, I think myself, I had I've had this have in the past had this misconception. I, I think uh, maybe the misconception comes from Elijah when Elijah offers up his sacrifice uh, on Mount Carmel. And he calls down, he prays, he calls down the fire. The fire comes down and it, it consumes the entire sacrifice and, and the stones and the, the water and the wood, all of that. And it's like everything's completely gone. Uh, that's not normally how the sacrifices went. They didn't usually burn them to a crisp. They didn't usually let it stay on there until this, this thing was no longer, no longer there. Uh, typically the sacrifice was made. It was, uh, in fact, placed upon the altar, um, and then it was actually given out to the priests. It was the food that they would partake of. And this was their part of what they uh, received, and, uh, and so they would, they would receive this, this offering up, and there would be meat. Now, I'm, here I'm talking about the, within the law, within the Jewish law. This is what happened, and similar to what, what happened there in the pagan, uh, pagan temples. But they would, uh, they would offer these, they would, you know, kill the animal, they place it upon the, uh, upon this fire, upon this altar, 
And then that meat, when it was done, uh, for then these pagan, uh, pagan temples, they would then take that meat and they would bring some of the meat. Some of the meat would go to the priest and then the other parts of the meat they would bring to a marketplace. There's a marketplace that stood right in the center of the city of Corinth. Uh, it was a very large, from what archaeologists could tell, it was, you know, especially for its day, compared to the other cities around. And then the marketplace in Corinth was uh, particularly large, and it was right there in the center of the city. And in that marketplace, you could go and uh, you could purchase this meat that had been brought there that had previously been sacrificed to the idols in these uh, in these temples, and you could purchase it and, and bring it home, have it for dinner. Uh, this is, you know, now you don't have to chop up your own animal and you know raise your own animal, and uh, you go into the market and you're buying this meat. And um, so this is what's happening. But so Paul here has this question that's come to him that we don't get the exact question, but it had to have had been something of some people think that it's a sin to eat this meat. That there's people within the church that they feel that because this meat has been given to a pagan God and sacrificed to a pagan God, that Now, by us partaking of that meat, we are participating in the worship of that God. And so, we have some of our brothers in the church who they really feel as though those who are going and purchasing this meat and eating this meat, that they're going right back to the lifestyle that they had before and they're worshiping other gods. However, we have others in the church that feel like this is just me. <laughs> it's no different than any other meat because yes, it was given as a sacrifice, as a uh, as an offering to these pagan gods. But what are those pagan gods? They're nothing. So for us, who cares? It's just me. We have. You know, we have an understanding that there's only one God. So why does it matter? And so they, they need Paul to, to figure out, they're, they need, they're asking Paul to tell them, is this right or is this wrong? Should we be eating this meat or should we not be eating this meat? Are our brothers and sisters who think that this is a sin, are they, are they right? Or are they just caught up in their old ways thinking that that is actually you know, that these gods actually exist and that these, these sacrifices, you know, they, you know, they, this meat has somehow been tainted by them. And so Paul is, Paul is needing to, uh, he's needing to settle some disputes among the church. And so, as I said, that he, he comes into this topic and he says, okay, let's, let's address this. Let's address this idea of, of meat that's been sacrificed to idols. But then he goes on, and in those first three verses, he doesn't say anything about the meat, doesn't say anything about the idols. He just simply starts talking about a topic that he has already talked about, knowledge. 
Remember a couple chapters back, he was addressing knowledge and how they themselves had all of this knowledge that they thought that they were so smart, that they thought that they had um, so that they knew so much. In fact, there were many in the church who were rejecting him because he came with the simplicity of words. He didn't come like Apollos with all these flowery words. and uh, He wasn't saying anything bad about Apollos, but he's saying, you guys think that you know better than me. I was the one who laid the foundation for you. And so he says here, and the reason he goes into this topic of knowledge is because this gets to the root of the problem. Before he can address the problem of is this right or wrong, he has to get to the root of why why this is right or wrong. He has to get to the root of it, which is that their knowledge is getting in the way of their love. And really this becomes this this, uh, whole battle over, this whole, I guess, fleshing out of what is Christian liberty? What do we as Christians have liberty to do and what should we not do as Christians? And so, let's just read that again. If we can go to 1 Corinthians 8.1. Now, as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And the New Living Translation says, but while knowledge makes us feel important, It is love that strengthens the church. You can have all of this knowledge about who God is. You can have all of this knowledge about what you are able to do and, you know, what you shouldn't do. But if you are doing this and not loving your brother, if you are doing all of this and not showing love, then you are tearing the church apart. Knowledge, it can puff you up. It can make you look good. It can make you look smart. And in fact, knowledge is not a bad thing. Knowledge, in fact, is one of the gifts of the Spirit, the gift of knowledge. This is something that you know God is, God would reveal things to us, and so there is, there's you know, goodness in knowledge, but, but it is love that strengthens the church. It's all about love, not about how much you know. That is going to be the key to unlocking what Paul has to say on this topic of whether or not you should eat or whether or not they should eat this meat that had been offered up to the idols. That make sure that Charity or love is the is the number one uh, is the number one thing as far as what you are worried about when trying to decipher what to do. It says if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. What is he, what's he talking about? If any man thinketh that he knoweth, so this is not just simply. Um, if any man thinks that he has gained some knowledge about about these subjects, if any man thinks that he has you know studied this enough to have enough knowledge, but now this is this this knowledge or knoweth anything 
uh, is this word, Greek word gnosis, uh, is this basically this uh, idea that they would have that you have arrived, you've been enlightened, that if any man believes that he has come to a place where he has been enlightened enough, if any man believes that he has come to a place where he has now arrived, and now that I have arrived as a Christian, that I am able to do things that other Christians are not able to do, and it's because I know better than you. I have arrived. I knoweth all things. I am the one who knows uh, knows right from wrong. So it's it's this person who they he's saying, if any of you think that you've just you've arrived, realize you don't you don't know anything yet. There's always more to know. There's always we you you can search the word of God and you're never going to get the the depth of it. You can search and search and continue. To, uh, to dive into, into God, into the Word of God. And you're never going to run out of knowledge that you can continue to obtain. So, he says, if you think that you know everything, you don't know anything. He knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, well, now you've got something. If you think you've arrived, well... You've hit the end of your journey because now you have kind of stopped your, your uh, continuance of, of, of diving into all that God has for you. But if you love God, truly love God, now you, have, you are going to see that reciprocated and you will be known by him. And he who is known by him, God will reveal himself to those who love God. So, again, he is just emphasizing that he says, first, charity edifieth. It's love that is supreme over knowledge. Uh, he's there. He's referring to the love for others. But now he's uh, saying, again, it's, it's love that is supreme, and it's our love for God. Our love for God is the number one uh, thing that should be the most important to us. Okay, now, now that he's laid that groundwork, he dives into this um, topic here, verse 4. He says, as concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, the one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Okay, so he sets this up by seemingly siding with those who said, it's perfectly okay. Eating this food that's been offered to these sacrifices, this is the argument that they would have made that says, we know that there's only one God. You can go to Deuteronomy 4.28, and it talks about how these gods that are there, these, these gods of the world are nothing. They're just simply wood and 
stone. That there's these gods, there's there's nothing to them. And I I gave this paper to uh, Sister Kim right before I came up here. So she, I'm sure, doesn't have that. But if you want to go there with me, just take a minute. Deuteronomy 4.28. It says, "And And there ye shall serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. <laughs> he's, he's talking about how they would be scattered among the Gentiles. They'd be scattered among those godless people, or those who they serve gods, but not the God. And he said, these are just gods that are the work of men's hands. They're, they're wood, they're stone, they they mean nothing. They, you know, these things they can't hear, they can't smell, they can't see. These, these gods that they are serving, they have no power. They have no power to do anything. We see it there in Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy and uh, Revelation chapter nine, verse twenty. Says the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands. They should not worship devils. Idols of gold, silver, and brass, and stone, and of wood, which neither can see, nor hear, nor walk. These things, they have no power. They have no ability. These are, these are idols that, they mean nothing. They are these empty vessels, incapable of doing anything. I just, just referenced Elijah. And how that, that picture of that, you know, up on Mount Carmel, how God was, or God sent the fire and consumed that sacrifice wholly, completely. Now, what happened when they were called upon Baal? Nothing. They, they had hour upon hour upon hour. They're praying to their God, Baal, send the fire. Send the fire. They're cutting themselves. There's Elijah kind of back there after a while. Ah, oh, your God, he must be on vacation. He must be asleep. He can't hear you. Your God, he's not able to respond to you. Your God is incapable, incapable of doing anything. These, these gods that you serve are nothing. These gods that you serve are, these idols that you have are just empty Vessels and and so Paul is is saying this here. He's saying, now that you have come out from that, and you do have knowledge, you do know that there is just one God. We recognize that those gods, those idols, are nothing. We recognize that there's no power in them. That there is only one God. Okay, so. You would say, okay, Paul is about to tell us all, go ahead. Everybody, all of you, all of you who have this, this problem with eating this, this meat, stop it. Stop having your, your issues with it. Realize that there's only one God. That the, but that's not what Paul says. That's what you would think he's going to say. That's not what he says. Verse 7. 
Howbeit, there is not in every man that knowledge. In this, you have to understand um, that the people that he's writing to here are, are those who are in the church. He's not writing this letter, and these issues that are coming up here are not issues that are between those who still worship those idols and those who are in the church and they don't. He's writing this to the people who they are all in the church. This is an issue between brother and sister in Christ. This is an issue that's, that's happening within the church, within believers. But we also have to understand that just because somebody is coming to the church doesn't mean that we're all at the same level of maturity. That every one of us, every one of us as disciples of Christ are, are on a are on a, on a arc, on a journey to come to a full understanding of who God is. And there are some, he's saying, that they're in the church, but they haven't gained the full revelation. They haven't, they don't fully grasp the idea that these idols out here mean nothing. And now, you might think that Paul, as harsh as he has been in his in his letter so far, well, kind of except for in chapter 7. Chapter 7, uh, he actually gave a lot of concessions, gave a lot of leeway. and um, But outside of that, he, he has come down pretty strict on, on different things. And yet here, he is going to put love at the forefront of everything that we do. He says, Howbeit, there's not in every man that knowledge. What knowledge? The knowledge that there's one God and that all of these idols, that they're nothing. For some of them, they have the conscience of the idol unto this hour, and they eat, I'm sorry, for some, with conscience of the idol, unto this hour, eat it as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God. Well, I guess let's, let's stop there, verse 7. So some of our fellow believers in their past have struggled with idolatry. Some of our fellow believers who are in the body, who are saying that they shouldn't eat this meat, it's because they really had some issues with this in the past. That in their past, they, they were so devoted in their worship to these idols that when they would sit down at a meal, they're still thinking about these gods that they sacrifice these things to. And every time that they, now, you invite them to a, to a dinner with you, and you're eating this meat that they know has been sacrificed to an idol, it brings up all of these things from their past. It brings up all these things from their past where they, in, at that time, were worshiping these gods. They would sit around at a, a dinner table. They would talk about these gods and how, uh, about how, you know, maybe the, the sacrifice that they offered that day, it was going to 
to help them in one way or another. Maybe they'd have a bountiful crop that year, uh, going to have a child or whatever the, the case may be. But, but they're talking, you know, sit around and, and everything is about that. And so he says, you have some among you who, when they sit down, it's bringing up all of this past stuff. Their conscience being weak is defiled. He's, he's not, he's not tearing them down for having a weak conscience. He's just pointing out the fact that they are still struggling with some things in their past. They're still struggling with things that you are inviting them to do alongside you as a Christian. And they, striving to serve Christ, are finding it hard to move forward while being placed in that atmosphere. So what do we do? It says, but me commendeth us not to God. In other words, meat, it doesn't help us get any closer to God. For neither if we eat, are we the better? Neither if we eat not, are we the worse? So now, he brings it to a head. He says, by you eating this meat, you're not drawing any closer to God. By you not eating the meat, you're not drawing any closer to God. So, take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Okay. So, verse 8, he was saying it's neither right nor wrong to eat the meat that's been served to the idols. Verse 9 you need to be really careful because by you inviting somebody in to fellowship with you, and you gotta you gotta understand the culture of of um, fellowship and hospitality in in that place in the Western culture. Um, it was something special to uh, to invite somebody over, and it was something that they would commonly do. They didn't do life in a uh, in solitary like we do or just you would know, just then you know ourselves they're they're very communal people and they would have fellowship in fact uh, you know I have in my neighborhood where I live um, we have a lot of uh, Middle Eastern uh, families that live there right on our street right in our neighborhood and every Saturday um, in fact my dad was over a couple weeks ago, and he's driving home late on Saturday, left my house. He's like, what is going on here? He's like, why are there all these cars here? He said, oh, it's every Saturday night, every every Saturday evening. Uh, they all come over to the houses, and uh, they all just fellowship with one another. It's, it's important for them to come, to be together, to have dinner together. And so uh, they would all come over to the houses, and it was the same there that wasn't... It's not a, a Muslim culture uh, thing. That's a, a Western culture thing. And them, they were, them in the first century church, they were in a Western culture. They were very communal people. They would come. They would have dinners together. They'd have meals together. Uh, and so 
here, he's saying, when you guys come and you have meals together, you are you need to be really careful. Those of you who think that it's it's your right to do this, because some of you are causing this to be a stumbling block to those who are struggling right now. And here's where we bring this into today's context. You're not going to be sitting down with anybody, I assume not, and eating meat that's been offered to some idols, and that's going to be a stumbling block to them. But there are things that you may have all the, feel all the liberty to to do them and say, there's nothing wrong with this. And yet, somebody else who struggled with that in their past, it is a struggle for them. And it is a stump, it will be a stumbling block for them. For example, I, uh, I know, you know, some individuals who they had in the past been, uh, alcoholics. They've been delivered of that, but yet they had committed to themselves for this to not be a stumbling block that not only would they not enter a bar, but they wouldn't enter any restaurants that have a bar in them. Uh, even any restaurants that would, that would serve alcohol or that would serve alcohol. They wouldn't go into those restaurants. And, and by you saying, well, there's nothing wrong with me going. I'm not going to go. And you know, maybe there's no, nothing even wrong with you going into a bar and, and sitting down. If you're not going to eat or drink that, uh, drink alcohol there, if you're not going to get drunk, then you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Maybe even you, you say, well, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing uh, explicitly that prohibits uh, one uh, one drink of, of alcohol. There's nothing that explicitly prohibits that. It's my right to do this, okay? Is it a stumbling block to somebody else? Is it a stumbling block for the one who has who has suffered? Is it a stumbling block for somebody who they themselves, by coming in, they are going to feel the tension of, oh, in my past, this feels familiar. There's temptation that's there. And so we, we see this, this same thing that can play out in, in today, that there are things that you may have liberty to do, and the Bible may not draw the line right there at sin or not sin, but we do them because love is the greater ethic. It's not about having the knowledge and having the liberty. It's about loving my brother enough to not cause them to stumble. Okay. For if any man see that see thee which has knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. That's a pretty powerful thing, poignant thing that he would place in here. For whom Christ died. Here you are thinking that your liberty and your knowledge is so important that you're going to cause your brother to stumble and to perish 
And Christ died for him. He wasn't yours to just cast off. He wasn't yours to spend. Christ bought him. Christ died for him. But when ye sin so against the brethren, and you wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Okay, I want to wrap this up just by... uh, Coming to the other side of this, which is the one who might set standards for others that they themselves feel like this is, you know, this is what I need to do in order to stay pure. If it is not a standard that is, um, that has scriptural backing to it, if it's, okay, here's, Here's uh, and maybe in the past. I know I'm kind of drawing on some some old things, but there's uh, um, some ministers who I don't know personally, but I've uh, I've heard uh, that they do not, you know, they refuse to have a pool table in their house. Why? Because they in their past gambled. They play. They go into the pool halls. They would go. They gambled all their money away. That's where they would drink. They would you know, spend all the time. And so they themselves have a standard for them to not have a pool table. And if that person who has that standard for themselves puts that out there as the standard for everybody and says, it's a sin for you to have a pool table in your house. Well, I don't see the scriptural backing for having a pool table in your house being a sin, if you're not gambling, if you're not, you know, sure, it may, may open up some possibility of, of that, but there's also plenty of other things that you have in your house that could open up the possibility for that. If you have, um, you know, any, any other sort of things, you could, you could gamble on those or you could invite that atmosphere in, but, uh, but if you set that as your standards and you apply that to everybody, well, that's just as wrong. It's just as wrong. But if you, if you know that your brother does struggle with that and you invite him in, this is, that's what Paul is talking about. If you, if you coerce them, come on, just join me. Come on. Come on. It's not going to hurt you. Come on. Well, that's, that's the very thing that Paul is saying is on that side of it, don't don't just like you know try to bully them in or try to you know coerce them to come along with you when they feel hesitant or they feel a check in their spirit to not do it. Listen to that check in their spirit. But also, if you yourself have something that you feel strongly that you cannot do because you're going to slip and fall, and that you are you know you yourself might fall back into your old patterns and the old ways of the world. But it's not necessarily something that is backed by Scripture. Well, that doesn't mean that everybody else is a sinner because they don't do it. So don't don't apply that to everybody. Now, we see that there are there are uh, 
things that, in fact, in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, and close it, as I said, I'll close it with this, but there are things that, um, if you read through 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as we were summarizing, there were uh, times where Paul, he says, uh, he begins to say something, and he says, these are the words of the Lord. He's addressing, uh, he's addressing marriage and, and divorce and, and, uh, he, he says this, uh, as, you know, says the Lord. And, uh, the reason he's saying that is because those, what he's, what he's saying is something that, here, it was verse 10. It was because Jesus spoke on that particular topic. And so he's pulling a passage that Jesus said. Now, you really have to understand that because, because they didn't have, the Gospels yet. The Gospels hadn't been written. They may have had some written, written down, you know, portions, you know, some things, but, uh, but the actual Gospels, they didn't have in hand. These are, this is the oral tradition, or this is the oral things that have been told, told to them that he knew what Jesus had, had taught on, he'd been told. Um, and so when he says in, in verse 10 and through 12, he's, or 10, 10 and 11, he's saying, you know, this is not I saying this, but the Lord says this. But then he goes to verse 12 of chapter 7. He says, speak I, not the Lord. So here it's not saying, don't, and, and Paul, he actually does that a couple of times throughout that chapter where he says, you know, this is me. This is me talking. I don't have this directly from the, from the Lord. And I don't believe that that brings that with any less authority that Paul is saying it. He's just simply applying the principles of Scripture and of Jesus' teachings to their current situation, just like any pastor does today. Any, pa- any pastor has to today. That there's current situations that you don't have that particular situation that came up in the Gospels. And Jesus addressed it directly. And so... The pastor or even Paul addressed it, you know, as in his writings to the churches. So there's things that we have today. There's, there's situations. There's things that, that a pastor needs to be able to come in and, and take the principles of scripture and apply them to today's context and say, yes, there is not a particular scripture that says exactly this, but I, as the pastor of this church, as the shepherd of this flock, feel the Lord leading us to set some boundaries in these areas, not do these things. So there's some pastoral authority that we even see Paul taking in chapter 7, where he was applying principles. He says, this isn't the Lord saying this, this is me saying this. And so anytime that, that even I, as, as the pastor of this church, am applying scripture, I, I, I want to be careful in say, in setting those things as saying, there are some areas where scripture is clear on it, and there's other areas where scripture is less clear, but I, as the pastor, feel that this is something that, that will protect us by having these certain boundaries, certain things that we don't do. And so, uh, so this is, uh, pastoral discretion or pastoral boundaries. So that is, uh, hopefully that, that clears up some of that as far as Christian liberty. Paul is going to, in the next chapter, in chapter 9, going to continue in that same vein of freedom and, and Christian liberty and how uh, he himself, 
how he practices it, uh, how he lives that out. And so uh, we'll, we'll dive into that and uh, we'll see how, how Paul is living that out next week. But amen. Let's, uh, let's all stand here tonight. And I know this is Bible study as we're just diving in, but let's, let's all just close this out in prayer. If we can just lift our hands in this place, I believe that God, he wants to do something in our hearts, our minds. Amen. Jesus name. Lord, I thank you. God, that here tonight, Lord, that we could have the revelation of your word, God, that we can have the revelation of love. God, how love is the supreme ethic. How love, God, that we need to love you and we need to love our neighbors, God, and that there are things that we may have liberty to do, God. There may have be rights that we have, but Lord, because I love others, God, I will not do them. Lord, I pray that you would just help us tonight as the church, Lord, that we would show... Uh, show loving kindness to one another, that we would build each other up. Lord, I pray that this church, Lord, would be shaped and formed in your image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You can be dismissed tonight.